Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Welcome to Tuesday Home Time with Jan Bartlett. It's been a month since the Radiothon, and again, thank you to all the wonderful people who donated to this program and indeed all the programs on 3CR to make sure that we're here for yet another year. We are community radio, and that means the community keeps us going, not business and governments. But if by some chance you missed the Radiothon, it's never too late. Give the station a call during office hours on 94198377 or go to the webpage 3cr.org.au and follow to the donate page. And thank you all once again from the hundreds of volunteers and the small but vital staff. Then on to Tuesday home time for July 18. We travel to the Lakemba Ramadan night market with Australian-Palestinian activist Amin Abbas to find an answer to one of Palestine's secrets. Who raised the Palestine flag on a mast 80 metres high on a house in Jenin in the mid-80s? Cluster bombs and Australia. We don't make them. We don't use them. We've signed the treaty banning them. Why don't we condemn the US for the plan to send them to Ukraine? I'll be speaking with Richard Branaska, former Australian diplomat, also general manager of Radio Australia and adjunct professor at Canberra Uni and also Sydney Uni. To tackle climate change, we need peace and an accountable defence department. That's the title of a contribution to Pearls and Irritations from Dr. Sue Wareham, OAM, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And to Bougainville, where in a referendum in 2019, 97.7% of people voted for independence from PNG. But it appears that the government of PNG is shifting the goalposts to stifle independence. Vicky John, who has been working for and with the people of Bougainville for over 30 years, explains. And another OIM for the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. This time, Dr Margie Beavis. But as you will hear, Margie has been involved with many issues concerning social and political and in addition to anti-war and peace over many years, including being a valued guest on Tuesday Home Time. But let's not forget Mr Kevin Healy. No gong for him this year, but we live in hope. But here he is with his week that was. A week, Jane, listener, when in a heinous abuse by those involved in politics, the socialists are bringing politics into politics. An abuse of the political process to which we were alerted by that 100% reliable source and political innocent, caring business class party supremo and would-be big supremo constable Peter Duffer, 
after the robo-debt commission concluded the caring business class hayseed and sheepshit lot had stuffed up big time. The government is, like you know, making this political like. Like Pete, robo-debt wasn't political. Like devoted follower of the dear baby Jesus, loved thy neighbour, former big supremo scummo, has never told a lie. Like that Stuart stuff everything up and Alan Fudge the Truth and Christian Portaloo were honourable men acting honourably. As Shakespeare said, so are they all, all honourable men. Like the suffering and pain and death they caused was like a government not being political. Like the Shakespeare quote, of course, referred to a pack of murderers. Like Scummo and Pete and the team ensuring the filthiest rich of the filthy rich got filthy richer, while ensuring the poorest of the poor paid for their poverty was not political. Reflecting Scummo's Christian certainty that the filthy richer you are, the more God loves you. The poorer, the more God needs to punish you. So he was just doing the Christian thing, and what thanks? The commission claims he lied. I suppose the big question is, has he ever told the truth like he says he wasn't lying? See, he can't help himself. So, like you know, Pete announces the government bringing politics into politics, something politicians hate. Unlike the pink bat and smash the evil construction unions, her most gracious majesty's commissions, the caring business class lot set up to avoid bringing politics into politics. In which, if it's capable of getting it through his head, perhaps Pete should reflect on what goes around comes around. And now a panacea. The climate club. Yes, much excitement as we took yet another major step to counter climate change, if there is such a thing, by joining the Climate Club. Announced proudly in Germany by big supremo Anthony Albinguzi. Uh, so Anthony, what will the Climate Club do to, to cut pollution? Uh, we will talk about it. The Climate Club will discuss it. Uh, yes, yes, good, but what will it do? I just told you, we will discuss the uh, the problems, uh, uh, but what else will it do to about the problems? Uh, well, lots of things. It will discuss lots of things. Yes, yes, but what will it do to address fossil pollution? I keep telling you, we will discuss it, and our unswerving commitment doesn't stop there. We will urge non-members of the Climate Club to discuss it as well. So there. The Climate Club will hold pollution at bay through lots of hot air discussing pollution away. Hot air and pollute, but then grow a few trees. The Climate Club making the fossils shake at the knees. Oh, it's so exciting. Like the same exciting commitment at the recent nine-day Bond Climate Change Conference, which took eight days of discussion, obviously very important discussion, just to agree on an agenda for the nine days, which was supposed to lay the groundwork for the next COP, that conference in Abu Dhabi, to be chaired by the Supremo of the National Oil Company. Great, real balance. Great news for the planet. I was going to say real concern, but on reflection that's true. Real concern that nothing happens to stop the fossils doing their bit for climate change, if there is making it difficult to understand how the UN of the US of the UN of the world supremo Antonio Guterres could suggest the fossils had been allowed to exert undue influence over climate talks. 
countries are far off track in meeting climate promises and commitments. The climate agenda is being undermined, Guterres raved on. At a time when we should be accelerating action, we are backtracking. Doesn't he know the Climate Club and the COPBAT conference under the chairpersonship of the Abu Dhabi oil industry can discuss all that? Perhaps that should be chairperson oil tankership. Although on the backtracking bit, the community altruism of the fossil giants has risen yet again, come to the rescue as they point out that, clearly upsetting them deeply, yet nothing to do with them, that True Blue is literally miles behind, well, kilometres behind, in providing the transmission infrastructure to allow the transition to renewables, in turn delaying investment in renewables, now impossible, they say, to reach our 2030 targets, but the big-hearted fossil behemoths have offered the solution, more and more fossils. Not that they really needed to offer this generous contribution to community and global welfare. The socialists have already worked out that the best way to reach their fossil reduction target is to approve more and more fossils. Indeed, Santosas, the prophet supremo Kevin Yorgalabaler, this week informed us the International Energy Agency's Net Zero Emissions Report had direct quote, listener, direct quote, slowed the transition away from fossil fuels because it gave activists ammunition to campaign against gas developments that will help with decarbonisation. <laughs> no, no, no idea, listener. I'll leave you to think that one through. But it must be true, because no more reliable a figure than would side with Prophet Supremo Peg O'Neill before Prop Fossils backed him up, shared his concern. And if that hasn't convinced us, True Blue Aussie Minerals Profits Council Supremo Catania Constabilized Profits wrote a whole article telling us mining is True Blue Aussie's once in a generation net zero opportunity. Indeed, without mining, True Blue Aussie would be an economic backwater and able to provide any public services of any sort. So thank goodness we're in safe and responsible hands like Kevin and Peg and Tania and not in the hands of damaging destructive forces like those activists holding up the transition by opposing that from which we are supposed to be transitioning. Kevin did say the fact that that report's net zero target was already years behind meant fossils would be around for years and years. Uh, Kevin, the failure to reach those targets wouldn't have anything to do with uh, people like you, would it? <laughs> no, no, silly thought. Wash your mouth out, Kevin. That's me, Kevin, not all care for the planet. Him, Kevin. The sheer common sense of the US, of the UN, of the US of the world, refusing to sign any of these namby-pamby, long-haired, commie, greeny international bans on the lawful trained, trained uh, killer merchandise of the merchants of death, fun, fun, fun toys for the boys like landmines and chemicals and dumb-dumb bullets and peace-loving nuclear bombs, and yes, thank goodness, they, they eschewed a ban on cluster bombs because now they can send them off to their very, very, very good friend Ukraine. Something strange happened there. True Blue Aussie signed the ban. 
What happened? Our, our orders from the US must have got lost off to Ukraine and totally justified because the US says evil Russia is employing cluster bombs which hang around for decades, killing and maiming. So if it's good enough for evil Russia, it's good enough for the good upholder of world order, the US of. Even though evil Russia denies it has used them, but we all know they lie about everything, while the US of which says Russia has used them would never, never, never lie about anything. Although, seriously, which one do we believe? Although, US of big supremo Joe Biden Capital said it was a difficult decision because cluster bombs equal huge civilian casualties, but Ukraine had agreed to use the bombs carefully. Oh, good. Well, that's okay then. Other than, uh, Joe, you might explain how you use a, nu a cluster bomb carefully. Well, he must know, because the US would never act irresponsibly in the train-killer department. But as the lovers of liberty, freedom and democracy pour trillions of dollars of train-killer merchandise into Ukraine, grateful Ukraine cries foul. It needs more, more, more. That's not enough. Come on, come on, give us more. Thanks, but no thanks. And... When the His Most Gracious Majesty's Home Country Train Killer Minister questioned this as ingratitude, Ukraine Supremo Volody More 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 Zelensky was stunned. Where did that come from? What brought that on? He interrupted an eternal plea for the world to send him all its weapons, and one commentator commentated, who would have thought of this? The big winners from all this are the merchants of death. All's well with the world. Although all's not well in the world of Reserve Losses Bank Supremo, uh, soon to be ex-Supremo Philip Lay Workers Low, who was himself laid low. But while we feel for poor Phil, we can take solace in the absolute knowledge that one Supremo devoted to preserving the greatest little economic order of them all, the delicate flower that is the economy, has been replaced by another uh, Supremo devoted to preserving same. We won't notice the difference. Phew. Now, more sad news. In the Dusseldale Heart Bleed for Them department, the poor, poor crook casino, agreeing to a $450 million fine for being crook, but telling his honour the agreement can only proceed if it can pay it off over two years in interest-free instalments. The holder of a private mint licence told the court it can't afford to cop up the money in one hit, prompting the bench to whip out the calculator and calculate that the generous crook proposal would see the struggling private mint many millions better off than if it paid it now. He has reserved his decision on whether to approve the deal, but let's hope he shows some sympathy for the crooks at crook. In the non-news department, yet another report that overseas students are being ripped off big time by caring employers paying them a pittance per hour. But there's nothing new there. That's only news if they stop ripping them off. And, and finally, the big Aussie of which we're all so proud, BHP for bloody huge profits, bloody huge polluter, has asked the High Court on behalf of many caring employers to overthrow a federal court ruling that it breached the law by forcing workers to turn up on Christmas Day and Boxing Day that it can request but not require wage slaves, or sorry, workers, to work on public holidays. Disgraceful. 
work as having a life would make life impossible, it oozed logic. The big Aussie good enough to give them a job, and the lazy avaricious budgers think they can have a private life, have personal time. Shame! Good afternoon. And many thanks once again to Mr Kevin Healy for his week that was. And you never know, next year might just be the year when Kevin gets his gong. But in the meantime, listen to Kevin and the crew for City Limits tomorrow morning at 9am. Need an extra layer for the cooler months? We've got great new long sleeve tops that proudly say Workers Radio. Available now online or at the station. Perfect for layering when you're out on the street. They'll have you picket line ready for winter. At $40, you'll get a great quality shirt ethically and locally manufactured by Quali Tops in Reservoir. Order now and we'll post one out for $8.50. Or you can pick it up from the station. Buy one online at 3cr.org.au forward slash shop. Or come into the station during business hours at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for critical conversations about things that matter. Every Friday at 10am on 3CR Community Radio, 855am on your dial. And on 3CR Digital and streaming live at 3cr.org.au. So together, let's think again about important matters affecting us, like economics, politics, education, health, climate and what we can do about it all. Disabled people are worth every bloody penny. I'm okay with spending money on the supports that we need. There's more than 400,000 people who should be on the DSP. But are on job seeker instead. I took a life to live. I've got commitment. Like everybody else in society. The only way to provide meaningful support is stronger grassroots movements. These institutions are never going to be our saviour. If everyone was the same, it would be a born old world we live in. We need to do a lot of work in this country around shifting community attitudes towards people that don't fit the white, able, straight, cisgendered person. 3CR. Stay tuned, stay radical. On the program last week, Palestinian-Australian, co-founder of Olive Kids Foundation in support of Palestinian children, Amin Abbas spoke about his short visit to Jenin in May and the latest invasion and partial destruction of the refugee camp in that city. Today, Amin is closer to home in Australia, Lakemba, in Sydney, in fact, the Ramadan night markets, where he met a dear friend, and this is what followed. So firstly, it's such a nice setup that they have in, in Lakemba during Ramadan and what I noticed 
over the last couple of years. I have not been a lot, but like uh, the last couple of years where I have been, I've noticed that there's a lot of people that go to the night markets. Um, and actually, it's from everybody in the community, which is great to see. And I'm not sure if uh, a lot of people know the story, but I think the Ramadan market started with one particular place selling camel burgers. Uh, and the purpose of that during, this is like a few years ago now, during Ramadan to donate to the um, refugees from Syria. So that's kind of like the initial purpose of it. And by the way, those um, are actually um, a, a quite yummy. Those are big. I was actually um, apprehensive at that. But when you try them, it's not bad. But the market turned into a much bigger market uh, and many stalls. Uh, so what happened this year is uh, my son was insisting that we should go and try the Camel Beggars. He actually came from Melbourne to visit Sydney, and he was insisting that I would join him, so I did. And I uh, messaged a friend of mine to say, I'm at the market. He uh, immediately responds back saying, oh, we've got to catch up. A friend of his was with him, and we have got introduced. Now, his friend happens to be from the same hometown as I, from Janine. So typically, Palestinians would start comparing notes, uh, where you come from, what neighborhood, like where is your house located, what's your family name, all the rest of it. And we all, you know, succeed to find a connection. Uh, in this particular instance, uh, that friend happens to, uh, to know exactly where my house is. Uh, and my, our home uh, in Janine has like a couple of unique features. We, uh, at the time, had a tank, a Jordanian tank stuck in the backyard. Uh, and we had a, a UN mark, basically a telecommunication tower on the roof where the UN used to rent an apartment in, in that particular building, in our building. So immediately he said, yeah, of course, I know your house. And then I said to him, um, do you, like, you know, at some point that particular mask had a story relating to a, a flag. And he immediately told me, oh, of course, I know about the flag. I don't know who's put the flag up. And that's really amazing because for over 30 years, we had no idea who has actually put a flag up on that mask many, many years ago which kind of created a bit of story at the time. So that's kind of like giving you like the, the synopsis of what happened during the Kemba. That's basically what, what happened during uh, that particular evening. How tall is the mast? I think the mast is probably about 80 metres uh, tall. The mast is, not, is no longer there, obviously, for us to be able to measure it, but that uh, was used by the UN for uh, communication. And we're talking about uh, this is in the... Uh, in the 60s, uh, and that was the method of communication. So, yeah, it was definitely a very, like, the tallest sport engineer at the time. And what happened one night? So, yeah, that in that particular uh, story, my grandmother, who used to live in that house, she was in her 70s, she would often be visited by some of the children, my uncle in particular, occasionally, like us, we would visit. Actually, every summer we would visit uh, her as well. But that particular day or evening uh, when uh, after my uncle arrived, somebody during in the middle of the night climbs up this very tall mark and puts a huge Palestine flag on top of it. The um, uh, morning obviously would see this huge massive flag of Palestine in, in a, one of the tallest rooftops of uh, Janine at the time. So really, obviously, everybody in Janine was waking up to this awesome feeling of liberation. 
the army uh, could see this too, obviously, and immediately came to our house and knocked on the door and asked my uncle to climb up and uh, bring down the flag. Uh, obviously, uh, not him nor anybody, and a number of soldiers were there to do this huge climb. So they detained him, and they start getting machinery to like bring down the tower. In fact, my uncle, uh, who's an engineer, insisted to help instruct them if they if they have like obviously if they're insisting on doing this that they have to do it properly as opposed to really doing this in the way they were planning to uh just you know immediately going into like a bringing it down to help basically guide them in how to bring it down in an orderly fashion so sadly like you obviously hear that palestine and knocking their own homes under the instruction of the occupation army um in this particular instance obviously it's not it wasn't our home it was it was merely the, the mark but uh, also my uncle happened to give them some guidance on how to bring it down they did bring it down at the end of the day and obviously my uncle was detained and he was interrogated in fact he was interrogated by at the time uh, the military commander of Jenin, who was by the name of Ehud Barak who happens to obviously be a future prime minister of israel the army thought that your uncle had put it up there Look, I mean, whether they thought my uncle did or didn't, it was like a usually a reaction of requesting or like asking the owners of the of the house being responsible for it to undo whatever they think is considered obviously like a, a not in compliance with the army uh, rules, and that was the expectation of my uncle is to basically rectify the matter. In fact, uh, jokingly, my uncle was saying to me, had I known that they're going to ask me to climb up, I would have said that uh, when they knocked on the door and said, who's the, who's the owner of the house, I would have said it's my mum, my mother, who's a 70-year-old, who would not have been obviously requested to climb up. He, he said, I would have said, uh, it's my mother who's the owner of the house, not me. But of course, yeah, they did ask him, and, and uh, obviously he was not in a position to do the climb. And what was the story amongst the Palestinians of actually how the flag got up there? The person who did climb up, which we obviously did not know for so many years, was a, a person by the name of Omar and I, uh, a Palestinian activist and a, a person who was convicted of killing a settler in Jerusalem many years earlier and he was imprisoned eventually. Um, at the time of him putting the flag, obviously that probably was before that. So uh, unfortunately, Omar, well, Omar did escape the Israeli prisons and uh, moved to Bulgaria where uh, he was eventually being chased by uh, Israel, and he hid in the Palestinian embassy. Uh, however, sadly, uh, he died in mysterious circumstances. Now, whether that's done in, in all honesty in collaboration between the PA and Israel or, or through Mossad, we don't know. However, uh, sadly, he lost his life in the very embassy where he was hiding. And the significance of that flag flying on your grandmother's house? Jeremy, you, you may or may not know, but the Palestinian flag is considered a crime in Israel, in many parts of Israel. Obviously, in areas where it's controlled by uh, Palestinians, it's uh, less of an issue. However, in any area, uh, otherwise, it's considered a, a crime. Uh, and at the time, this is way before Oslo peace process. Now, that really made a huge difference, as I, I just mentioned. But at the time, the Palestine flag was considered a crime. So having it flying uh, at the highest point of Janine was definitely an elating feeling for, for everybody in Janine. 
it, it is definitely something that at the time was considered a huge crime, uh, as you know, because as far as Israel is concerned, anything that kind of like uh, relates to to Palestine or uh, our culture or our identity is considered a, a no-go zone. So at the time, that was definitely something that w- was to be banned. Uh, and hence, having the joy of seeing the flag uh, all over Jenin for many hours was, was, you know, an amazing feeling for everybody in Jenin at the time. Were there any consequences for your grandmother because that was her house and this illegal flag is flying on top? What did the military then do? Look, definitely in Palestine, doesn't matter where where is your house, all these cities that were under occupation, obviously, and under oppression, were always under the microscopes. The army would have regular uh, visits. So that also like impacted uh, us for, uh, for a period of time. Uh, my grandmother was living alone. She was like an elderly woman. There was definitely less risk. However, like visits from the army were, were not uncommon. The visits increased a little bit maybe after that event, but eventually they, they settled down. So yeah, there was some damage to our property from obviously bringing down this mass. So there's some trees that got like obviously crushed under the, the, the falling of the different parts of the mass. Uh, however, overall, obviously the, the, like the army could not really do uh, much for an elderly woman in her 70s. Were you around at that time? Do you have any memories? I was around at the time. I was um, in Kuwait, and when our uncle obviously told the story upon his return back to Kuwait, we were uh, obviously all elated in many ways with what happened, and obviously we felt uh, sorry for losing one of our landmarks or the landmarks that were in our house, and and obviously sorry for the you know experience that my uncle and my grandmother had. But we were obviously elated with to hear the story, and that story was a story that was told in Jenin for many, many years. And I have actually personally told the story to many of my friends over the years, including to the that friend that I met uh, uh, at that night market, uh, as a story that you know is remembered. Interesting enough, he kind of like witnessed that story himself and knew who put the flag up. I was wondering about your son. Had he heard the story before, or was that the first time? My son has heard the story from me before, but obviously he was fascinated by the fact that, you know, two people, two Palestinians meet at a, at a market in Australia, uh, exchange notes, and then have such a strong connection and managed to kind of like uh, solve a mystery that's been unsolved for many, many years, for 30 years. He was definitely fascinated by what really happened and, and witnessing that obviously was obviously the icing in the cake. Is the house still in the family? Yes, the house is still owned by the family. Sadly, my mother passed away and not many of our apartments now are actually occupied. Before, only one of them is occupied by people renting it. So, again, this is the sad reality of Palestinians that uh, were, you know, exiled from Palestine. It is really a sad reality where there were houses that were you know, flourishing with, with people and families and now are, you know, just empty and just collecting dust because of, like, you no, know, the people that own them are actually in exile due to the occupation. Talk about the significance of that day, that night, to Palestine today. Look, obviously, as Palestinians, we have aspirations. We, we want our freedom. We want our human rights. 
And it's really that simple that what we really want is our ability to live in dignity. I mean, the, the, the symbolism of our flag and being able to express our freedom being denied until today, 75 years after Nakba, tells a story that even something as simple as raising a flag could potentially end up being locked up today, as well as in that uh, mid-80s date or evening when that flag went up. Palestinians really need the freedom, and this is the time where the rest of the world needs to see it for what it is, as simple as this is the case. We really just want our freedom. We want our equality. And that's what that not signifies, is one act of one courageous person to put a flag up on the highest point of humanity to say we, we want our freedom it, it is still as significant today with the lack of that very freedom that that person was trying to kind of signify with that, with that act. Well, just finally, I mean, the Jordanian tank in the backyard, what's that story? Okay, that's, uh, I guess, another interesting story that two tanks in 1967 uh, were... Uh, involved in some of, like, obviously, um, in, in the conflict, in the 67 conflict. They end up in our side of uh, the uh, the hill. Two of them were about to get in and, and actually, like, did some damage also to our backyard. One of them turned around, the other, uh, and, and left. Uh, another one got stuck, and the soldier actually left it and came and spoke to my grandparents. Uh, he told them that, you know, the tank is stuck, and he had to, obviously, like, obviously survive. Uh, interestingly, the other tank that managed to turn around and, and not get stuck got uh, hit by one of the Israeli planes and that uh, soldier died, or the soldiers, there must be a couple, because there's a couple of graves next to that tank further up in the mountain. Uh, the one that was obviously stuck, the soldier uh, you know, obviously survived. Uh, at least what my grandparents told us is that they obviously the soldier walked away unharmed. And yeah, that tank got stuck in our backyard and it was like a feature of the backyard for many, many years. About maybe seven, eight years ago, somebody just you know, decided to chop the tank and, and take it into pieces, sadly, so it's no longer there. However, for many years, it was a feature of, of our backyard. Great memories there of the, the markets, the night markets at Lakemba. Absolutely. Thank you so much. No worries. Thank you, Jan, as always. I appreciate the discussion. And I've been talking to Amin Abbas about, in Lakemba, an answer to one of Palestine's secrets is found. Because the Palestinian fight isn't just the Palestinians' fight, it's all our fight, because it's a fight not just about land, it's about a fight for freedom. Everybody should be standing here today saying, Free Palestine. Solidarity with our Palestinian brothers and sisters on behalf of the Bumbanja Nation, my people who've never ceded their sovereignty. We should be recognising Palestine as a state and recognising the rights of Palestinians. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. Fears are Palestinian scarves, and they're a symbol of support for justice for the Palestinian people. 
buying one will support the last remaining factory in Hebron that makes kafirs, and all proceeds from the sales support projects in Palestine, especially Gaza, as well as local solidarity organizations. From the traditional black and white kafir to an array of modern designs, explore the range and order online or drop by 3CR during business hours. Where your support for the rights of Palestinians. Go to kafias.org.au. That's K-U-F-I-Y-A-S.org.au. A 3CR supporter. Cluster bombs and Australia. No. We don't manufacture them, we haven't used them, but we have, together with 109 nations with 13 additional signatories, adopted the Convention on Cluster Munitions. Then why is the Australian government not condemning President Biden's decision to supply Ukraine forces with cluster bombs? That's the question asked by Richard Bronowski, AO, former Australian diplomat, General Manager of Radio Australia, Adjunct Professor at the Universities of Canberra and Sydney, and an author to boot. I spoke with Richard recently, and the first question was, when were they first manufactured, and by whom? Germany invented cluster bombs. They called them butterfly bombs at the end of the Second World War. They were crude uh, by today's standards, but they were meant to scatter smaller bombs around a certain area to, <laughs> to, to wipe out enemy troops. By about 10 years later, about 34 countries were building some or other variant of cluster bombs. But the most prolific users have been particularly the United States. And the United States used them prolifically in Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos. Uh, even today, 50 years after the end of the Indochina conflict, uh, farmers are getting their legs blown off uh, ploughing their fields, their paddies in Laos particularly and, and uh, Vietnam as well as Cambodia. The, the Americans use them in Iraq. Uh, they've used them in Latin America too. Russia's used them in the Chechen war. Uh, France has used them. Israel has used them against Lebanon and other countries. And so it's, it's become quite a, a, a prolific form of exterminating people. Yes, well, not necessarily the fighting people, it's the civilians who pay the price. Well, this is the point, Jan. The, the fact is that 20 to 40% of the bombers released from a larger canister uh, don't explode immediately and they are scattered around and up to 20 or 30 years later, they're still capable of exploding. And that is what has happened. The kids have had their legs blown off when they've seen what looks like a toy or a sweet uh, in, in a long forgotten battlefield. Um, as I said, they've been they've, they've had enormous destruction, destructive effect in Indochina as well. So th that's why in 2010, a convention, or 2008, uh, the, the United Nations convened a, a meeting to try to ban cluster bombs. And by 2010, about 113 nations had signed on to it, including Australia, uh, to ban cluster bombs. Several countries did not join, including the United States, notoriously, of course, and Israel. I think India, Pakistan and China did not sign as well, and Russia. So that's the situation as it is now. 
So you're talking about at least 50 years before they were banned. Why did it take so long when there's such a devastating weapon? Oh, because uh, people are only beginning to realise later on, and governments were only beginning to realise later on what devastating effect they had. I think the Indochina War particularly was uh, was instrumental in this. Such destruction and damage was caused in all those countries that people got together, countries, nations got together, governments did, and decided that they had to ban them. So that's what happened. A growing horror at the devastating effect on civilian life. And what's the story today, Richard? Who's Who's got them? Who's using them? Okay, the story, it's very hard to cut through the unrelenting propaganda about the Ukrainian war. I do think Russians have, the, 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 the Russia has used them, although I think probably fairly carefully, and I'm not sure in how many, how many cases, but what's happening now, the big fuss is that Biden has decided to send cluster bombs to Ukraine, to Zelensky, because the Ukrainians, he says, are running out of artillery ammunition. But, you know, cluster bombs are a different story, a, a level above indestructive effect, uh, artillery shells. But that's what's, that's what's happening. There's been quite a reaction. The French, the British, uh, I think Canada, other countries, many countries have protested and said, hey, you shouldn't be doing that. We shouldn't be doing it. Australia, although we signed the convention, Albanese appears not to have protested to our great and powerful friend. He has not protested to President Biden saying you shouldn't be doing this. Is there any idea of how many countries are still manufacturing them? No, not really. I don't have those details, Jan. Um, I imagine, though, that uh, you'd find uh, that the, the main armaments powerhouses in Europe, as well as the United States, are continuing to make them. I, I wouldn't be surprised at all if uh, Germany and uh, probably France and other European armaments manufacturers are making them. Uh, certainly the United States is. I think Russia would be too. For what purpose? Well, they're a devastating weapon, as you say. Uh, Biden has said that the cluster bombs he's supplying to Ukraine will only have a 2.3% chance of, uh, of non-explosives. In other words, it's a very small percentage of the, the whole. I think that's ridiculous to try and make some finely calibrated figure about how many are going to explode or not. The fact is that there will be some left in the ground and later on people, civilians, kids are going to be killed. Well, as you said, it's a number of years since the convention was adopted. Over 100 countries have signed. What pressure since then has there been on the countries who haven't signed to do the right thing? In any pressure, any more than there's any pressure on the members of the, um, the, the nuclear weapon states, pressure on them to honour their commitment under Article 6 of the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty to get rid of their weapons if other countries don't develop their own nuclear weapons. I think probably there's a stasis about this, there's passivity, there's no attempt, in my, to my knowledge, of any organised protest about cluster bombs, who makes them and what they're used for. Biden's latest uh, adventure to give them to Ukraine will probably stir a good deal of feeling and there might be some pressure in future to get those countries who haven't signed onto the uh, convention 
against cluster bombs to do so. But people are protesting, of course, in the United States as well. We are in Australia. Just go back to what was happening, particularly in Cambodia, Vietnam, Lai, where an unknown, I suppose, number of those dreadful bombs were, were dropped. Children and yes. farmers are still being killed all these years later. How long do these bombs last in the ground? Who's to say how long is a piece of string? I mean, they're made of, I think, trinitrotoluene, TNT, uh, a, a highly effective explosive with a devastating effect. They're still unearthing bombs, unexploded bombs in London from the Blitz. They're still finding bombs around Europe from the Second World War. So, you know, that, that's what that's that's nearly that's almost three quarters of a century. Laos and Cambodia and Vietnam were a lot after that in the 60s and early 70s. I imagine the bombs that are still lying around in paddy fields around that Indochina, many of them are still there and, and could explode whenever someone, you know, bumps into them. So it, it's an ongoing problem. There have been efforts to get rid of them. I was ambassador in Vietnam when we were trying to finish all the unfinished business of the Vietnam War including having a missing in action mission and, and looking into the raw, into Agent Orange, the effect of that. But we didn't have anything about cluster bombs. Whether Australia since then has done that, I don't know. I don't think so. I don't think there's been any attempt to do that. You mentioned Israel before. I believe that they've used them against the Lebanese and the Palestinians. When was this and how, how serious was this? Oh, goodness. When, when was the major... Uh, invasion of Lebanon, I think about 2006, 2007, but I wouldn't be quite sure about the debate, but there, about the date. But Israel did at one stage invade Lebanon, and uh, I think they used cluster bombs there. That's, that's the reports I've read. And, of course, they have used them against Palestinians. So it's, it's an ongoing problem, Jan. It's not something that's uh, happened just once, but it seems to be a repetitive thing. Well, where, where do we stand at the moment, Richard? How can these countries be made accountable? They can't. <laughs> where do we stand? We stand with a great deal of confusion in the international community. We stand that there are individual groups, well-meaning people with conscience, some of them very highly qualified, prominent citizens, especially in the United States and in Australia and in Britain and many other countries who protest all the time about the fact that, uh, that uh, the, the great powers haven't signed on to non-proliferation. They still have nuclear weapons. Not only that, but they're increasing their, their sources of them. Cluster bombs are simply one of the lot of munitions and killing instruments that many people are concerned about. But there hasn't been, uh, until this latest announcement by Biden, to my knowledge, any major effort on the part of the citizens of, of the world to, to try and outlaw these things. It's come up again now, there's indignation, there's, and it all relates to giving Ukraine any more weapons and this fuss about whether Ukraine should be more thankful for what has been given. <laughs> all these things are going on, but cluster bombs are simply part of the mix. It's part of the awful situation we have in uh, Europe at present, which has all kinds of uh, possible effects in the spreading of nuclear weapons. I mean, Putin has suggested he might use tactical nuclear weapons in Ukraine. 
let's hope that that doesn't happen because if it did, I think the, the balloon will go up and there'll be that will lead to unmitigated and spreading of nuclear weapons, nuclear war. Can we talk a bit more about Australia's stand on this recent announcement by Biden? Has any government minister made a comment on it? No, to my knowledge, not. I heard Richard Miles, acting prime minister yesterday, in long tendentious interview talking about how Australia is doing its best by Ukraine and how he's got no problems with NATO extending its influence, its reach into the into the Pacific, something that Paul Keating strongly objected to, and I do too, and many other thinking people do as well. But uh, cluster bombs didn't come up. I think, unfortunately, we've got a prime minister who is not particularly... Uh, sophisticated when it comes to foreign policy. We have a foreign minister who's trying her best to bring sense to the government in terms of relations with China, and yet she's wedged between two hawks. Albanese, on the one hand, who knows little about foreign policy but is determined to follow the United States, and Richard Miles, on the other, a defence minister, I think not very well informed about defence or about Australia's capacities and what we should be doing who is in lockstep with the United States in developing uh, nuclear-propelled submarines, which is a very big mistake in my view. Just looking at Ukraine, if these weapons do go to Ukraine, where are they going to end up? They're not going to end up in Russia, are they? They're going to end up in the fields in Ukraine, aren't they? Yeah, look, the main fighting, as you know, at present is in eastern Ukraine. Don't forget, Ukraine is a big country. It's bigger than France. It's the biggest country in Europe outside Russia. It's in the Donbass region of the eastern Ukraine, the Russian-speaking, coal-producing industrial region of Donetsk and Luhansk and Zaporizhia, where the nuclear one very big nuclear power plant is. Uh, that's where the fighting is going at present. So... In answer to the question, where are these bombs going to end up? They'll end up in that area. I think the Ukrainians have no compunction about that. They, don't, they have been fighting. The Ukrainian government under Zelensky and before him have been, uh, have been attacking since early in the uh, 2010s up to now parts of the Donbass region because they're Russian-speaking and they don't like them. But I think that's where they'll end up, in the, in the Russian part of what is still Ukraine but is now is becoming independent states with Russian protection. That's, that's their aim. And uh, that's where the uh, cluster bombs will end up. So that's where civilians are going to be killed. And then they bring them in, they fire them off, they end up in the fields. Well, they end up they in the fields, they yeah. end up in the factories, they yeah. end up in, in the cities. Some will be found, many won't, and so they're going to uh, later on detonate and kill people. And, of course, the president says, well, don't worry about it. I'll clean them up after. <laughs> he doesn't say much at all at present. You mean Zelensky? Yes. I think he's, uh, uh, he's got wishful thinking about driving the Russians out of uh, the uh, Donbass. I don't think that's going to happen. In fact, there are many accounts now, individual accounts, where the commentators are saying that Ukraine has just about lost this war that the NATO countries are sick and tired of giving him more and more expensive weaponry and that uh, Russia will prevail. We don't know the, whether that is true yet, but that seems to be what's, what's uh, a lot of people, more and more people are thinking that. And it seems to be a, a classic case of 
the first casualty of war is truth. Oh, yes, absolutely. Well, that's, <laughs> that's been the case in the Ukraine ever since uh, Russia's first uh, invasion. What do you know about Zelensky prior Not to... Much, uh, uh, he claims to be Jewish, I wouldn't doubt that, and he uses that as a defence against those who say that he's uh, a proto-Nazi, that he's, he's in favour of, of right-wing extremists in the uh, Ukrainian armed forces. It's a mixture. He is a mixture. Don't forget he was an actor and a comedian before he became uh, president of the Ukraine. And in that capacity, he had a, a, a very a capable way of relating to people, and he still does that. I mean, he, he's part theatre, part seriousness, part comedy. He, he wears the same khaki T-shirt and trousers, even in the most austere company. Uh, this is part of his shtick, his uh, way of wanting to be. But it's all really part of an act. People, uh, Some commentators think that he's a complete puppet of Washington, I wouldn't go so far as that at all. I think he's got a lot of individuality and a lot of feeling towards his country. But um, to what extent he is being driven or guided or led or directed from Washington, I'm not too sure. I've got a lot of money. Well, finally, Richard, you, had, you spoke about people opposing what's happening at the moment, the weapons going to yes. Ukraine. Paul Keating comes up and to me he says a lot of serious things. It gets shot down in flames. Would you have expected it would be as vehement as it has been, the way he's been treated? Yeah, we've got a big debate going on in Canberra. On the one side, you've got the intelligence military community who are really guiding the government in terms of uh, fear of China and sticking with the AUKUS agreements and rah, 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 you know, we're going to be powerful again. We're going to have nuclear-propelled submarines. It's all a lot of nonsense, really. Uh, on the other, you've got more thoughtful people in Canberra saying, hey, this isn't on, we shouldn't be doing this. We should have a much more neutral, independent position. And of course, America will remain our friends, but, you know, we've got to get on with the Asians and we certainly have to get on much better with China. On the side of the hawks, that's where the pro-helping Ukraine lobby lie. That's where the people who want to drive to destroy Russia, or at least to make it a lot weaker than it is, that's where they come from as well. So there's a divide in Canberra, and I'm afraid the government at present is mesmerised by submarines, by AUKUS, by st sticking with the United States. They're not really thinking ahead. And many of my colleagues, senior diplomats and others, very thoughtfully are saying, hey, this isn't good. We, we, you know, we've spent our careers working for Australia's foreign policy. In many cases, we supported what they're doing with the United States. We don't any longer. It's my fear. That's my worry. And finally, again, the consequences of all this money and resources being put into preparation for war, whether it's supporting Ukraine or it's, it's, it's targeting China, is the fact that when other parts of the economy need help, you know, nursing homes, we can't, we're going to close nursing homes because we can't or aren't able to find nurses. Yes, yes. Look, you're right here, but I don't, I don't have the figures. It's just the defence and the defence lobby, the defence industry seems to have a, no, a, a licence to simply spend money without accountability. The public have not been told, for example, what comprises the $368 billion that is supposed to purchase eight nuclear-propelled submarines when we could get 
the same number for about a tenth of the price. It's just a ridiculous situation that we have. But defence seems to be unaccountable to the public and to the government. And, and as you say, uh, money should be spent, a lot more money should be spent on, you know, aged care, <laughs> which I'm getting towards <laughs> that area myself, and kindergartens and children and, and uh, hospitals. So that's what we should be spending much more money on. But look, I'm not, I'm not an economist here. I don't keep up with the latest statistics, but I would myself want the government to be more accountable and more transparent in spending this enormous amount of money on submarines. It needs to be justified. But I'm afraid the Australian public seem to not be too concerned about that, except some of us. And I've been speaking with Richard Bronosco, AO, former Australian diplomat, general manager of Radio Australia, adjunct professor at the universities of Canberra and Sydney, and an author. This deal really accentuates and is very complementary to the white Australia domestic policy. Here you have not only a white alliance, but an Anglo-Saxon alliance of the ultimate cultural allies of the United States banding together. And the significance that it is aimed at colored peoples, at Asian peoples, at Pacific peoples, this is injecting a horrible racial dimension to this conflict. So I think the U.S. and Australian elites' racist military policies are complementing the increasingly racist domestic policies. So I think, therefore, we really have to look out very, very carefully at this very dangerous synergy between racism on the military front and racism on the domestic front. Subscribe to 3CR. Where else can you hear radical news, analysis, music and opinions? Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash subscribe or call the station on 03 9419 8377. Where else would you hear about progressive economics? Well, you can definitely hear about it on 3CR Radio Radio MMT between 5.30 and 6.30pm the second and fourth Friday of each month. Radio MMT. Wondering how to pay your donations to 3CR Radiothon? It's easy. You can pay online at 3cr.org.au or call us any weekday with your credit card details on 0394198377. You can also come into the station at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy during office hours and pay by cash. Or simply post your cheque or money order to PO Box 1277 Collingwood 3066. And be sure to tell us exactly which program you'd like your donations to go towards. 3CR, stay tuned, stay radical. To 
tackle climate change, we need peace and also an accountable Defence Department. These are the words of Dr Sue Wareham, OIM, President of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War, and it was a, a contribution to Pearls and Irritations. Sue, how are we going to get an accountable Defence Department? Well, we need pressure to bring our defence establishments generally, not just in Australia, but including in Australia, to come into line with the global concern about the urgency of climate change, the need for action on climate change. And thus far, what we're seeing is that militaries around the world generally are not taking this issue nearly, nearly as seriously as they need to. And that includes in, in Australia... Um, and the main part of the problem is that defence establishments around the world have been exempt from reporting under the UN framework for climate, uh, for greenhouse gas emissions reporting, the Paris, etc. framework. And so militaries are not being, defence departments are not being called on and are not obliged to correctly uh, measure and report their military greenhouse gas emissions. And because these emissions are so high, extremely high, then this is, this is a big, big gap in our global attention to climate change. And it's been estimated that military greenhouse gas emissions could account for around 5.5% of the total greenhouse gas emissions globally. Now, that's a pretty significant percentage, 5.5%. You might say, oh, it's not all that much, is it? But, but it actually is. It's a very large amount of emissions. And it's not hard to see where they come from when you just look at any military activity anywhere or the greenhouse gas that's been pumped out by the um, uh, military hardware, by the land vehicles, by the fighter jets and, and all the rest of it. So we really need action to focus on this and to reduce military greenhouse gas emissions and to have them properly accounted for. Well, do you know of any country that does force their military or their defence departments to, to analyse what they are doing? I couldn't name any specific country. There may be uh, there may be a database on this somewhere around the world, but it would be very few um, because it's it's not mandatory. It's voluntary under the UN framework, um, and most countries either just don't report it or report it very incompletely. And what can we do here in Australia, or what should we be doing? Well, we need to be um, ensuring that our defence department is not exempt from the actions that the just about all the rest of the community are being required to make, changes that need to be made to address climate change. We need to make sure that our Defence Department is not exempt from that and they can't just continue with business as usual. Now, they say that they have plans to reduce emissions and targets and all the rest of it, but the problem is that there's no transparency around it we don't know what their emissions are. We don't know how they're reported. So therefore, how can you hold them accountable? And they need to be held accountable. The fact that they um, they talk about security, uh, and I'll put that word in inverted commas, um, and that notion is sort of sacrosanct. So therefore, we let them on, 
off the hook when it comes to things like climate action. Well, that's not good enough. Our security relies preeminently at the moment on ensuring that we have a habitable planet and climate change is the huge challenge to that. It's not the only challenge, but it is an absolutely huge challenge to us having a habitable planet. So we need to get better notions of security. Uh, What does security actually mean? And it doesn't mean our capacity to just fight wars and prepare for wars. So, yes, we, we need to talk about security. We need to hold the Defence Department accountable for their climate um, action and ensure that they, um, ensure that it's that there's adequate uh, reporting measurement and and also a significant part of that is that we're not going to achieve adequate climate action in Australia without actually reducing our military activity. Some in the military talk about a um, a green military, but that's really just a fantasy. It's not going to happen. There's no way it could happen. So we actually need to reduce our military activity. And as a significant part of that, we absolutely need to make sure that there is not a major war against China um, because that will be an absolute disaster for our climate in so many ways. And we're not doing too well, are we, really, when you look at other aspects of our promises on climate change here in Australia? Well, Australia has been um, very, very slow in this regard and our record is quite disgraceful, really, considering that we're one of the wealthiest countries, one of the most fortunate countries in the world for most of us. So there's a lot, lot more that Australia could be doing. We could have been a leader. We need to be uh, absolutely ensuring that there is no, there are no new fossil fuel projects. And yet our, even our current government is approving new fossil fuel projects in 2023 with so much awareness of the need to phase out fossil fuel. This really is not acceptable. It's extremely disappointing. We need to phase out fossil fuel, that means no new approvals and we need to be focusing much, much more on climate action and much, much less on preparations for war against China because we need, this is where our security lies, our security lies in cooperation with other nations and once we're at war with other nations then cooperation on things like climate just disappears, it doesn't happen, it's not It's not a priority when nations are at war. Just to get back to the military for a moment, and we've got this aim of governments in Australia to increase our production of weapons. And when you're talking about the 5.5% for emissions, does that take into account all the factories and all the facilities around the country that are actually manufacturing those weapons? Yes, I believe that figure would take into account the supply chain because we need to recognise that the supply chain for militaries is a significant part of the problem. You you know, look at all the, the military hardware that goes into fighting a war and it's absolutely huge. So yes, the supply chains are a significant part of that. What sometimes happens is that militaries, if they do focus on this problem at all, will tend to look at operational emissions, you know, how much 
um, how many missions does, say, a fighter jet put out uh, when it's flying and that sort of thing. And by the way, it's absolutely, absolutely huge what fighter, fighter jets emit, emit in a short period of time. But it's it's the whole supply chain. It's everything that goes into fighting and preparing for wars because that's all part of Defence Department. It's what they do. And while you're talking about wars, we've got the the war in Ukraine, which I think an increasing number of people are saying that it's a, a US proxy war on Russia. And we have the announcement in the last few days, which has upset and horrified so many people that they're going to supply cluster bombs to Ukraine. Yes. Well, this is an appalling decision from the United States. It's going to lead to much more civilian suffering, including children. There'll be suffering, um, injuries and suffering and deaths going on even after this wretched war finishes um, for years afterwards. And, you know, we hear ridiculous statements like, oh, they will be used responsibly and we'll clean up after ourselves. We know these are lies, part of the propaganda. And one of the distressing, disappointing aspects also is that as with every war we're told this is about justice and the rule of law international law all of that and yet these weapons are banned they're illegal because they're grossly inhumane and to talk about talk about the rule of law as the as the US does ad nauseum and the Australian government talk about the rule of law and then to introduce, well, Russia has introduced these weapons, we're told. So the same applies to them, of course. But to introduce these weapons and then um, talk about the rule of law, it's just non- nonsensical. This is extremely disappointing. We don't see that that decision is going to be reversed, but it's going to, in, at least in the short term, but it's going to lead to more suffering. But it has to get through Congress, is that right? My understanding was that the decision has been made. No turning back. That's that's my understanding at the moment. Surely, if another if enough countries put up their hand and said you can't do this, you must not do this, they might listen. Maybe one would like to think that the US is sensitive to global opinion, but. There's this thing called US exceptionalism where they seem to regard themselves as above the law. They make the rules and uh, every everybody must obey the rules that the US makes. I wouldn't, wouldn't hold out a lot of hope that the US would respond to global opinion on the matter of cluster munitions. Mind you, the... The fact that the treaties like this exist on cluster munitions and other inhumane weapons, the fact that treaties like this exist, even though some of the powerful nations don't come on board and sign them, the fact that the treaties exist is still extremely important because it does set a global standard, a global norm, which most countries will abide by. But, and this is an important but, even even the countries that don't sign up to the treaties will still be mindful that global opinion has shifted. So the current current example of the US sending cluster munitions to Ukraine is extremely disappointing because up until now, the treaty had had an impact even in the countries that hadn't signed it in changing their, their policies.
well, this is the cluster bombs, but we've also got the nuclear bombs. They're talking about, you know, both Russia and US have nuclear weapons, and neither of them have signed the the ban on nuclear weapons. Yes, that's true. And what we see playing out in the Ukraine war is extremely worrying. Um, the fact that Russia has threatened to use these weapons and we shouldn't discount that threat. We shouldn't regard it as uh, empty words. So our time right now is extremely dangerous. But nevertheless, I would say that the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, the Nuclear Weapons Ban Treaty, is still having a powerful impact in reminding even those nations that global opinion will not tolerate the use of these weapons. They are prohibited. They must never, ever be used again in warfare. They must be abolished. So the leaders in those nations know that that's what the majority of the world think. That will, that will be having an impact and we can't absolutely rely on that to prevent the use of the weapons, but it will be having an impact. So the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, even right now, is extraordinarily important and we need to keep upholding it and pressuring every nation who hasn't yet signed it, including Australia, to sign that treaty. Just finally, Sue, when you're talking about the Ukraine war, it's the it's the people of Ukraine who suffer the most. They're the health of the people, the well-being of the people, while two superpowers conduct wars. Yes, indeed. It is always the way, at least in modern times in war. Um, it's the civilians who are suffering and it's the civilians who are not having a say in what happens next. Are there going to be negotiations or is this going, just going to drag on for years into a wretched, awful, bloody stalemate, which um, I couldn't say whether that's the way it is now. We're told it's not. But that is certainly a risk that neither one side nor the other will get an outright military victory. There will not be an appetite for negotiations and it will just drag on and on. And it's the civilians who who will be suffering. And we are getting propaganda. We're getting a we're getting a view that the Ukrainians are, uh, and I'm, I'm not disputing their enormous enormous courage in what they're going through, but we are being fed a view that they're you know willing willing to fight on, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Well. How much is that true and how much would the civilians, if truth were to be known, really, really want this war to finish and would like to have negotiations to that end? So I think we probably won't know uh, the truth of what the civilians are thinking for quite some time, but it is imperative that the war finishes so that the civilian suffering finishes well, at least this phase of it, it will go on for decades. But we need to stop inflicting further damage on the civilian people. And then try to rebuild their lives again. Yes, and that will be possible for some, uh, not all that possible for others. Um, and it will just take a very, very long time. Thank you again, Sue. Thanks very much, Jen. I've been speaking with Dr Sue Wareham. AOM.
who is the president of the Medical Association for the Prevention of War. And that article was in Pearls and Irritations, the online journal, not to be missed. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. Join Past the Mic Media at Black Spark on Wednesday the 26th of July for a presentation about art, music and resistance since the February 2021 military coup of Myanmar. Featuring a statement and music from Chaw Chaw and Myanmar punk band The Rebel Riot, the photography of 2023 World Press Photo Award winner Mal Kam Wah, and a presentation and Q&A with Myanmar photographer Mako Nang. Tickets are on a sliding scale via Humanitics. As always, no one turned away. More details are available on the Black Spark event page. Focus on Myanmar, art, music and resistance. 5.30pm, Wednesday the 26th of July at Black Spark. Hosted by Pastor Mike Media, a 3CR supporter. Tune in to Stick Together, all about workers' rights and social justice. 8.30am Wednesday, 7am Saturday. Or listen on demand on 3CR's website, 3cr.org.au. Talo falava, maalo elele, kiorana, fakalo falahiatu, kiora, nisa bolivinaka, aloha, woman jacka, and hello. This is PX Fano on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. The voices of our community. Talking Kwe Pasifka, talking us. Saturday afternoons, 1.30 to 2 o'clock, only on 3CR. Join us as we share the stories of our diverse people, from arts and culture to news and opinions and information about our community, for our community. As a collective, we are all proud Pacifica diaspora, advocating for our people from the LGBTQIA plus spectrum. This is presented by the Pacific X Collective and produced on Wurundjeri land in the studios of 3CR in Nam, Melbourne. It's now almost four years since the 2019 Bougainville referendum, which resulted in a 97.7% vote in favour of independence. But as the time draws closer for the decision in the PNG Parliament regarding the future of Bougainville, people on the island are raising their concerns. I spoke yesterday with long-time activist for Bougainville, Vicky John, and first asked her why the leadership on Bougainville are saying that they have no confidence in being able to achieve independence under a government in PNG led by Prime Minister James Marape. In November 2019, the people of Bougainville had a referendum which was basically whether they will pursue greater autonomy within the PNG, within Papua New Guinea, or have its own independence. The outcome was that 97.7% of the Bougainville people voted for independence. A wonderful outcome, a glorious outcome. And then 
sadly, the, the referendum was non-binding and needed to be ratified by the Papua New Guinea government. So back to your question. Was that always the case, that it had to be ratified by the PNG parliament? Yes, it was always the case. And the ratification process for the referendum results was agreed to by both the Bougainville government and the PNG government. And it was to happen, the process of ratification was to happen this year. And it actually um, went to the PNG government only last month, June 2023. And the case was, on the Bougainville side, was that the outcome of that referendum was to be ratified by a simple majority in Parliament. When it went to Parliament, the PNG government said, no, it's got to be an absolute majority. They've moved the goalposts from a simple majority to a two-thirds of the parliamentarians in the PNG government have to vote for the um, ratification of that referendum for Bougainville. So Bougainville's top uh, government lawyer has basically accused the PNG national government of putting up roadblocks to stop Bougainville's independence. He's the Bougainville's Attorney General and the Minister for Independence Mission Implementation. His name is Ezekiel Mazat. And he's accused the Papua New Guinea national government of making the independence process very difficult. And he says that as far as Mr. Massat is concerned, um, he thinks that the national government has been given faulty legal advice and has misled the government into thinking that the parliament was at liberty to come up with other decisions. He feels that's very wrong. He also said that the options agreed to on the referendum ballot was greater autonomy and independence and the people of Bougainville have voted for independence in a constitutionally guaranteed referendum and again being the Attorney General of Bougainville he said um, it is his hope that at the next joint supervisory body meeting it will be fruitful and will dispel our fears that the National PNG government under Prime Minister James Marape is putting up roadblocks to Bougainville's independence. So they're hoping that they can sort this matter out. Faulty legal advice from where? It was agreed. The ratification process was agreed that it would be that a simple parliamentary majority on the referendum vote was all that was needed and it was agreed upon by both governments, PNG and Bougainville. But again, all changed in June when the minister, the PNG minister for Bougainville Affairs said that it had to be a majority vote. So it's moved from a simple majority to a absolute majority, but that wasn't agreed to when this process began. I'm not sure where the PNG government are getting their advice from, but something we definitely have to look into. All that time, the people of Bougainville were thinking and understanding that it would be just a simple majority. Correct. And that's how I've been also, you know, picking up everything as well. So it's just like another kick in the pants, or as, you know, the ABG Attorney General says, it's a, another roadblock. PNG is putting up another roadblock. 
It's like they don't want Bougainville to have her independence. Well, I'm sure there's a lot of people who believe that PNG wants to hold on to Bougainville, but what's the feeling on the ground in Bougainville? Have you spoken to some of the people there? Um, I have been reaching out and I have been asking questions, but at this stage I haven't got any answers yet, but hopefully I do, because there are concerns, you know, you know, what is the constitutional basis for the Bougainville Affairs uh, Minister from Papua New Guinea? What is it? Yeah, what is the constitutional basis of his statement? You know, and is he quoting a legal opinion or any other specific section of the um, PNG Constitution? It's hard to work out. I, I don't have those answers. And as I said, I'm, I'm reaching out to others to help me with those answers. And I'm sure... Um amidst the anger and frustration that's being felt on Bougainville is the view that PNG never intended to let Bougainville go because it's too economically important. There's certainly that aspect, but I'll, I will come to that because I'd like to also raise issues with the, about Bougainville Copper Limited, you know, who were the ones who really caused the war on Bougainville, you know, some time ago, from 1988 to 1998, basically, nearly 10 years. But before I go to Bougainville Copper Limited, I think the other issue for Bougainville is that Papua New Guinea are not sending the restoration funds that have been agreed to under the peace agreement. Bougainville are in arrears of one billion kina. That's a lot of money. It's not trickling down. The money is not trickling down from Papua New Guinea to Bougainville. So who in PNG is being held accountable in relation to those grants not getting to Bougainville? And, you know, what is PNG doing with Bougainville funds? You know, this is another massive issue. How does one billion kina translate into Australian dollars, do you know? I forget what the kina is to the dollar. But it's a fair bit. Yeah, it's a lot of money and definitely a lot of money for Bougainville that, you know, they should have that money and they're not getting it. So, you know, again, is this another deliberate tactic to stifle Bougainville's independence again? It's very hard to know. But again, I hope to get some answers to that one as well. So I guess just going on the third issue, some time ago, it was when Rio Tinto left Bougainville. I think that was 2016. It was just after the referendum that... Um, Bougainville had her own um, elections to, for their new president and Ishmael Torama was elected. That was back in 2020. So back in December 2019, with the um, following the successful referendum, where 98% of the people of Bougainville voted for independence from Papua New Guinea, Prime Minister James Marape of Papua New Guinea reaffirmed a previous commitment to transfer PNG's entire 36.4% shareholding in Bougainville Copper Limited to the people of Bougainville. Now, these transfers have um, yet to occur. They haven't happened yet. So that was way back in December 9, 2019. Then in 2020, Ishmael Torama was elected as the president of Bougainville. In February 2022, five out of seven clans in the Panguna Mine area voted to reopen the Panguna mine. In January 2018, the ABG, the Autonomous Bougainville Government, 
took a decision to refuse the extension of Bougainville Copper Limited's exploration license. The Bougainville government's decision remains subject to judicial review proceedings in the, the Papua New Guinea National Court. And apparently that case was adjourned until the 10th of July this year, 2023. Now, I can't find, again, can't find out what happened in that judicial review. And again, I've reached out to others. But I did uh, read the chairman's address in the... Um, 2023 Annual General Meeting of Bougainville Copper Limited, who said that he would like to resolve the issue outside of court. So I don't know whether that is currently happening, that the um, Bougainville government is now talking to BCL outside of the courtroom. I don't know. So that's another question that I'm still trying to find out. It's also the question of the cleanup. There's also the question of the cleanup. They have got a, an international um, mining assessment team. I'm sorry, I've forgotten the name of them. I think it was Tech Coffee or Coffee Tech or something. And they're now in the process of looking at all the damage left by Bougainville Copper Limited and Rio Tinto. I believe that assessment is going to take at least 18 months. So with all these time factors and time frames that are happening, I also wonder whether Bougainville Copper Limited is also kind of doing stuff behind the scenes to make uh, the Bougainvillians, yeah, you know, let's open the Panguna mine and try and whitewash this whole process on that environmental assessment. Right. Well, you just can't sort of clap your hands and say all that devastation is going to just disappear. It's, it's absolutely massive, isn't it? It's absolutely massive. But, you know, if we were, you know, if we were in the shoes of the mining company, they're going to take any shortcut they can to get that mine reopened and happening again if they've got the money, if they've got the backing. It's something I've really got, well, most people, I'm sure, and myself, are keeping our eye on. I don't trust the mining company. I never have. There's still a lot of division on Bougainville about even having mining again, but, you know, it seems like, um, a lot of people are saying, well, we need it to have our independence and be economically viable. I think there are other ways to be economically viable, but it's up to the people of Bougainville. And also, when those big mining companies come into a country, they take most of the profits out of the country anyway. The people don't get a lot. Oh, that's right. They're just left with um, maybe a few royalties or, yeah, there's not much in it for them. And, you know, if Papua New Guinea, if Bougainville Copper Limited go ahead, as they're hoping to do in reopening the Panguna mine, and Bougainville hasn't got the shares yet, even though it's been promised, from the PNG government, it's not looking very good for Bougainville. Well, I'd say there's plenty of people in the area of the mine who are going to fight this if the, if the company tries to reopen that mine. Well, yes. It's not like 100% of the people agree to the reopening of the mine. There, there's also contention with that um, we don't, people saying we don't want Bougainville Copper Limited back. They caused the war on Bougainville. How can you concur with something like that? And then there are others who are saying, well, if we open the Panguna mine again or reopen the mine, can we use another mining company? And also the fact that 
if they open, reopen this mine, does that set the scene for other miners to come in and because there's a, there's a whole spine of areas of Bougainville, isn't there, that can be mined? Yes, that's right. And I know there's contention about that too, but I'm not up to date with that, Jan, but I know there's a lot of contention with it. Well, there are alternatives to the mine, aren't there, Vicky? Yes, there's agriculture, there's fisheries, there's tourism. There's lots of things that, they, that people of Bougainville could consider. And are they considering it now? Are these ventures going ahead? Yes, I know that um, there are eco-tourism uh, eco accommodation and diving classes or schools or diving and looking at the reefs. And so people are actually going to Bougainville from other countries, but I, I'm not sure you know, what the um, income from all those things are or how much goes to the government, I have no idea. But yes, people are trying to use, you know, agriculture as well to make things better for Bougainville. There's a water bottling plant has just reopened. Uh, sorry, not just reopened, just opened. And the fresh water, which is bottled, is going to other countries, I believe. So there are other business ventures happening. I'm assuming they're going well. I haven't seen anything to the contrary. Food production? Yes, well, Bougainville is a very, um, they're self-sustaining basically. Most um, communities have their own gardens, massive gardens, where it's majority of women who, who tend to the gardens. So there's always fresh produce. That's still a big thing. It's been in, you know, in the Bougainville's history for a very, very long time. A disturbing article I saw the other day that they've actually opened an office of the missing to help reconnect families displaced by the crisis. All these years later, families are still Mm. disorganised and separated. Yes, and and they want to know where their missing relatives are. It's it's a terribly traumatic, a terribly traumatic thing. I I believe it's the International Red Cross that have set up the office. And, yeah, people want answers. They want to know where their loved ones are. It's very sad, terribly sad. It was, you know, a long time ago that Marilyn Havini had the compilations. There were two compilations of the human rights abuses that happened in Bougainville. And it was extremely sad when those those um, reports were launched. So, and that was a long time ago. That would have been like the late 90s, early 2000s. So, yes, you're right, Jan. Like here we are now in 2023 and, we, and none of these issues have been resolved. Very sad. And people have a long memories of what happened during those years when there's never been a, 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 a definitive figure, but it's... It's a terribly large number of people in a small place like Bougainville who either died, disappeared, injured, displaced. Yeah, absolutely terrible. Sadly, the estimate is around 20,000 people. And that means virtually every family, does it? Yep, from north to central to south Bougainville. Everyone is affected. What are your concerns at the moment, Vicky? I'm concerned about Bougainville Copper Limited. I do not trust them. I'm concerned 
that they could be brainwashing the people of Bougainville. I'm concerned that the Papua New Guinea government are holding back on the restoration grants that are meant for Bougainville and, and, and it's been estimated a billion kina in arrears. So they're stifling the people of Bougainville. And thirdly, that Papua New Guinea continue to change the goalposts, causing roadblocks with regard to the ratification process in the Papua New Guinea government. Would all or some of that be, have been expected? Well, it always comes at a shock because you think you're on the right path or Bougainville thinks it's on its right path and things are going well and then it changes. It's just, a, you know, that simple simple majority to the has to be a major. So it's gone from like a simple majority to a major. So that's two-thirds of the politicians have to vote instead of like the majority vote. If that was agreed upon, that it was just had to be the simple majority, why have Papua New Guinea changed it to majority? Two-thirds of the parliamentarians have to vote. You know, it's, it's things like that. We're forever coming across, you know, these roadblocks, or as I keep saying, the goals post keep changing. It's not fair. And just to remind listeners that the people of Bougainville have been in your mind for many, many years, haven't they, Vicky? Yes, that's right. For a very long time. I was very fortunate way back in 1993 to meet Moses Avini and his wife Marilyn. And from that moment on, I haven't stopped for Bougainville. Sadly, Moses passed away in May 2015, but we carry on in his footsteps. So, yeah, so that's 30 years, Jen. We must all get behind Bougainville. It's her right, Bougainville's right, to have her independence. They want independence. 98% of people want Bougainville to be independent, and it's up to us here in Australia to support that call. And we can't forget the role of the Australian government in all of this. Yes, they played a pretty bad role in the past, and it's time they backed Bougainville also. And as Vicky said... She's been working and advocating for the people of Bougainville for 30 years now. Tune in to Rainbows Don't Fade With Age on Radio 3CR fortnightly on Mondays at 2pm. Rainbows Don't Fade With Age, Melbourne's only show dedicated to all things LGBTI, ageing and aged care. With stories and information to empower and inspire action for all those interested in the health, well-being and visibility of older LGBTI people. Where does the profit your power company makes end up? If you join CoPower, you get to decide where 100% of our revenue goes. So while we work to dismantle the whole broken energy market, our members are building the world they want to live in by supporting strike funds, renewables projects, anti-poverty initiatives, and much more. So change your power company and then start changing everything else. That's what CoPower is all about. Victorian energy fact sheets and basic plan information documents are available at cooperativepower.org.au. For clear advice on the right plan for you, contact us on 03 9068 6036. A 3CR supporter for service to the community through a range of roles, service worthy of particular recognition. These were the words which accompanied the awarding of the Medal of the Order of Australia to Dr Margie Beavis in this year's Honours List. Margie has been a contributor to Tuesday Home Time and other 3CR programs over many years. 
And when we spoke yesterday, I began by offering the congratulations of all of us here at 3CR. And then we went on to talk about that commitment through a range of roles. Where did it start and when? Probably the first one, well, the bottom one is being a GP, which I think I think all GPs should get them. Not that I'm biased or anything, but <laughs> the, probably the earliest would be being a GP, but also being an examiner for the College of GPs. So working a couple of times a year, um, looking at other GPs and just checking that to get the RACGP fellowship, you have to reach a certain standard and just helping other people get there and, and checking that they've got there. So being an examiner was probably the earliest. How does that feel to examine sort of your cohorts? It's really interesting because as a GP, you've got so much you need to keep up to date with and you always feel like you're not keeping up to date enough. And then you look, look at other people, you think, well, perhaps I'm doing okay. <laughs> and so it's, how does it feel? It feels good because you're making sure that the people going out into the community are going to be good doctors and whether they've trained here or they've trained overseas, there is a certain standard of care that Australians justifiably expect, which is safe, good care. And basically, you're just making sure that everybody's got safe, good care. And, and most people do pass, but the ones that you don't pass, you don't feel bad about it because you know they need to go back and do a little bit more work before they're ready to go out on the community by themselves. Can I just take you back a little, your time in the United States? And that was, that was helping people also at that time, wasn't it? This was the patients. Yes. I'm not really sure which bit of the United States. I mean, there was, I was working in a free clinic in New York. What was that like? It made me so value Medicare. We are so lucky with Medicare. Even now, given it's eroded and not being looked after by the government, I think it's gradually being chipped away despite what everybody says. But Medicare is so much better than the American health system. This free clinic, people on low incomes could come without charge. And then there was a sort of sliding scale. But in general, people would come so much later. In Australia, people would come with a nasty chest cold. In America, they'd come with pneumonia because they're also terrified of the health system costs. And the things were very expensive. Some poor women would use abortion as contraception because they couldn't afford the pill. I mean, it was just sort of like crazy stuff. It meant that if you were poor and you didn't have a job... You had no health insurance and really were dependent on the very thinly spread city-provided free care, of which this was one of the services. But it was very educational for me how fortunate we are to have Medicare and free hospitals. And, you know, if you're seriously ill in Australia, it's terrible, but the hospital's there. If you're seriously ill in America, it's terrible, but you also might lose your house. It's just, it's shocking. It, it may make you destitute. We're very lucky to have a free health system. We should do everything we can to protect it. Now, you studied at Melbourne University and then later on you give back to that by working with the medical department at Melbourne University. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I can't feel that's giving back because it's really good fun. Um, I teach some medical students. Um, I have done it for some years and I really enjoy that. It doesn't feel like work. The students are always remarkable people. They've worked so hard to get there. And it's basically, I do it at a very basic level, just teaching them how to discuss things with a, with a patient, how to examine a patient, and also the basics of what we call clinical reasoning, which is sort of like the detective work to make sure that you're getting the right diagnosis and then, then going on to the right treatment. And then we have Margie Beavers standing for Parliament. 
with the Greens or was that local government? No, that was state government. Yes, I think that was that was also a very interesting experience. The main aim of that was to actually get the Senate candidate up, the Legislative Council at state level, and we succeeded in that both times. I did it in 2010 and 2014 and, and basically putting up, I mean, the things I stood for were, were for, you know, basically social justice, so good healthcare, good education, much better. I mean, the, the treatment of people on benefits at the moment, particularly New Start and some others, is just terrible. That they, they are, I think it's something like two-thirds in, living in poverty. And, you know, the number of children that are living in poverty, particularly from single-parent households, is a disgrace for a really wealthy country. So, yeah, no, standing, stand, doing that was also really interesting, very hard work. I have a whole new respect for politicians and how hard they work. But it was very interesting. And when did Medical Association for Prevention of War become a part of your life? I'd been a member for many years. It really wasn't till my younger daughter, at year 11, became quite clear that I didn't need to be a parent anymore in any sort of active sense. So then I had much more free time. So I then became more active with MAPW, the Medical Association for Prevention of War. And yeah, I just had more time to do stuff that interested me outside of work. And what is stuff at MAPW? (laughs) So many things. Basically looking at what, I mean, prevention of war is really such a nebulous concept. So it's a matter of honing in on what is achievable at a local level. Uh, Sue Wareham has done some tremendous work with the Australian War Memorial, which is turning sadly into a very a display case for a lot of weaponry and potentially even a theme park given the way it's going. But anyway, she's doing a lot of work to make sure that this is better governed and more respectful of history. For instance, getting First Nations history, given that's our first frontier war, properly acknowledged. There was a lot of action not by me speaking out at the time of Australia going into the Iraq war, a lot of information put out and speakers talking about the terrible consequences this war would have and sadly what we said was right about a million Iraqis did not a million Iraqis died unnecessarily because of that war which was a political war we're currently working we've had trying to get keep weapons companies outside of schools there's a huge normalization of war in the military happening in Australia at the moment it's been going for more than decades you only have to look at Anzac Day which has gone from a day of solemn recognition to a sort of slightly celebratory jingoistic footy team that we can all support. Anyway, that's another story, but we're working to make sure that in schools, weapons companies are not going in and normalising. And in fact, we have successfully got the Queensland, New South Wales and Victorian state governments to make sure that weapons companies do not go and sponsor events and work in schools with school children. We've spoken out a lot about AUKUS and the AUKUS submarines, which are such a, on so many levels, so problematic. If we were spending that money on social welfare in our society, we would have, as I said, much less poverty, much better healthcare, much better education. This is this, these submarines, I've yet to be convinced why we're getting them, and they are so prohibitively expensive, and that money could be so much better spent, for instance, on public housing to reduce the homelessness that we have. They are so problematic for 
so little benefit and so far away. And as I said, I've yet to be persuaded any decent reason why we need them. I'll come back to August in a moment, but I'd like to you talk about the fact that even though the, you're working to keep the weapons manufacturers out of schools, they're well entrenched now in many universities. Yes, we've also a few years ago had a campaign at Melbourne University, which took on the Lockheed Martin, a very large Lockheed Martin grant, and that we met with various professors and some deans that were responsible for that program. We didn't make much progress with that. We certainly protested it strongly, and you're quite right. There is the weapons, the military-industrial complex is increasingly established in Australia, and the recent decision announced, I think, a couple of months ago that Australia would be classified as a domestic supplier for the US is very concerning because we have, as I said, a, a push for weapons manufacturers as a source of jobs, which is actually a nonsense. It's a furphy. If you put an equivalent amount of money into renewable energy, I think you get about one and a half times the number of jobs and certainly into healthcare about one and a half times the number of jobs and education you get about double the number of jobs so if we're talking about job creation schemes and job creation as the reasoning the excuse for getting into weapons manufacture um, it's a very poor excuse and also very important for members of MAPWs to get out in the community and explain what you stand for and what you're doing yes yes we do that as much as we can unfortunately with COVID public meetings closed down. We used to have regular dinners, as you would well know. <laughs> and yes, we do what we can. I'll, I'll be speaking at the Hiroshima Day rally that's happening on the 6th of August in the city. I think it's one o'clock if people are interested. We obviously are very are working hard to highlight that nuclear weapons haven't gone away and there's still a problem and Australia should be doing what the Labor Party committed to, which is sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which would be a big normative step in terms of increasing the stigma on these weapons. It makes them, again, like chemical weapons and biological weapons, illegal. For a long time, there's been a sort of anomaly that they haven't been illegal. And once they're illegal, that does have ramifications in terms of how they get funded and how people perceive them. And it switches them from what they are. The, the government wants us to think about them as a political weapon. They're not. They're a humanitarian existential threat, really. And, yes, we're doing our best to get out and educate people about that. Well, being a member of MAPW wasn't enough for you. You became involved with ICANN, the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons. When and how did that begin? That was about 2013. Um, Bill Williams, who's sadly passed away, and we miss Bill terribly. Yeah, so about 2013, Bill invited me onto the board, and I've been working with ICANN since then. It's a really interesting organisation, unlike MAPW, which I should add, MAPW is also involved in the nuclear waste chain. We have, have worked with communities in South Australia and were one of the organisations that was instrumental in stopping Australia becoming a international nuclear waste dump. Um, we've worked hard on that um, and we're certainly supportive of the current nuclear waste facility protests that are happening in South Australia. It's highly problematic and that's a whole other story. Um, going back to ICANN, ICANN's got the luxury of being a single issue campaign which makes it much simpler to 
work with. So our sole focus is nuclear weapons and uh, remit. We've, we've worked very hard with unions and with all levels of government, council, state and federal. And we have now nearly 80% of Labor parliamentarians signed up to a pledge to sign the treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And in fact, I can, talking of the treaty, we did get a treaty through the United Nations in 2017, which has been pivotal. And in 2017, we were also fortunate enough to be the recipient of the Nobel Peace Prize. And that was that was sort of mind-boggling. I mean, it was mind-boggling to go to the United Nations and be an observer and see people talking to each other in sort of six different languages with instant translation. It's just sort of the stuff of... But I find that still magical. But just watching governments talking to each other was really impressive. But getting the Nobel Peace Prize was also a real thrill and, and also a wonderful, wonderful marketing tool. We regard the, the treaty as the real prize, but the Nobel Peace Prize was also fabulous because people sort of sit up and take notice when you've won something like that. So that was going to Norway for the celebrations was really something in my wildest dreams I never thought I'd be part of, but it, it was a lot of fun and really very, very special. Anyway, so we are currently still pressuring the government. We're still um, encouraging them because they have got a policy to sign this treaty and we will be going to the ALP conference in Queensland in August. I'm going up with about eight of us going up. And again, we will talk to the politicians. We've got 108 members of parliament. We're very close to having the majority of both houses of parliament signed up to sign and ratify this treaty. So... We're really uh, working hard because it's it's actually a bit of a no-brainer. What sign Australia signing this treaty is important because we are we will be the first of the nuclear umbrella states, in other words, the countries that claim protection from nuclear weapons, to sign this treaty. And it does reframe it, as I said, from a political tool to the actual reality, which is an appalling humanitarian risk. And over time, this will lead to pressuring governments. This stigma that they're not okay will lead to pressure of governments. It's hard to conceive now, but we will get back to the negotiating table and we'll be able to get nations to talk to each other to, over time, have sort of verifiable, balanced reductions in stockpiles because the current situation with nuclear weapons is totally unacceptable and doesn't stop wars. I mean, just look at Vladimir Putin. He's, he's almost used nuclear weapons as a protection to go into war. I mean, yeah, they're, they're, not, they're not doing anybody any good and they're definitely a risk. And of course, it's a huge international organisation now, isn't it, ICANN? Well, it started here in Melbourne. Uh, Dimity Hawkins, Bill Williams, Tillman Ruff, Dave Sweeney, Sue Wareham, to name a few, were the people who really got this up and running. I wasn't around at the time. And then with funding from the Puma Foundation, the Cantor family were very kind, and Mark Wooden and Anne Cantor and Eve Cantor, meant that we could establish it internationally. And then now it's run from the Geneva. It has over 600 organisations as affiliates. And Yes, works very much at an international level coming from Geneva, ICANN Australia. We did start it, but we're really a, a small fry compared to the Geneva office. Just to go back to AUKUS, you mentioned the the hundreds of billions of money earmarked for the submarines, but it's more than that, isn't it, AUKUS? It's more than submarines. Oh, absolutely. It's, a, it's, it's locking us into an alliance with the US and UK sharing a whole lot of technology. But the re- the biggest concern is, is that it 
further locks us into yet another U.S. war. And given the size of the U.S., or the, the, perhaps I should say the track record of the U.S. in terms of just looking at, for example, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, we have willingly gone along with these wars and have really, as I said, about a million people died in Iraq, about three million died in Vietnam. I haven't seen a recent tally for Afghanistan, but these wars are so far from benign, they're terrible, and we really, the, the AUKUS agreement just reinforces, the submarines as well, the submarines really further enmesh us with the US military chain of command and in some ways make Australia much more likely to be a nuclear target, Pine Gap or one of the other bases, or indeed the two bases on the east coast and the west coast will also be nuclear targets. I mean, as, as I said, it's on so many levels, you know, international, national. At a local level, basically the port that hosts these submarines will have nuclear reactors in port. This is a risk for the community, especially now that the regulator, I mean, people don't pay much attention to regulators, but the people that are monitoring the submarines, according to international standards, should be totally independent from the military. But no, in Australia, the regulator is going to be reporting to the Defence Minister. And that is terrible because it means that if there is a nuclear accident, who is going to report it? In Britain, since 2017, they've refused to report any accidents or any events from their nuclear submarines. And it's only because of questions in Parliament it's emerged that it's been about 400 incidents in the last six years in UK submarines, and three of them have involved radiation exposures. And it's this assurance gaily said that nuclear submarines are you know, accident-free and incident-free. Well, sorry, there's this thing called human error, there's this thing called technical error, and we need an independent regulator. But in Australia, despite assurances that we would be absolutely gold standard safeguards, and they've been saying this at the United Nations and everywhere that Australia would do it absolutely perfectly, well, they've fallen at the first hurdle by not appointing an independent regulator that actually will make sure that these submarines are properly regulated. It's very disturbing. Well, finally, Margie, you've recently retired from your duties as a GP, but more time for activism and family, and I'm sure that both those areas are keeping you on your toes. <laughs> definitely, definitely. One last plug, though. I'm also involved with Quit Nukes, which is an MAPW uh, initiative which I can as partnered with and if people write to their superannuation funds just a quick email <laughs> to your super fund and say what nuclear weapons producers do you hold what nuclear weapons producing companies do you have in my portfolio because it's an absolute eye-opener as to how many super funds have nuclear weapons your your savings are funding nuclear weapons which is pretty terrible so write to them make them feel bad about it as I said though you've got more time now to do what you <laughs> yes, 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 yes. No, I, I look after my granddaughter two days a week, which is a lot of fun. I still teach. But yes, no, it's lovely. I'm, I'm enjoying my retirement, that's for sure. Well, I'm, I'm so glad. There's, I'm sure there's, is there more than two members of MAPW now with the gong, or is it just two? I'm sure there's more, but there's two that I know of. <laughs> but I'm working on it. <laughs> Great. Thanks, Maggie. Well, thank you so much, Jen. And that's Dr. Margie Beavis, OAM, and the other one I was referring to is Dr. Sue Wareham, also OAM, 
with Medical Association for the Prevention of War. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.